uh, we have as a mission in our church to love and to live like Jesus. And I don't know about you, but it feels uh, a challenge. It's a high call to love and to live like Jesus. And uh, hopefully when we come together on Sunday and we, we uh, have our time with each other, it's, a, it's an opportunity to be re-inspired, to be re-challenged to do th- that very thing, to love and to, to live like Jesus. Before I get started, a couple of quick announcements I want to let everyone be aware of. This uh, week we are starting with our family groups, our first semester of family group midweek. So we're super excited about that. I want to say thank you to all those that are leading or hosting the family groups. I really appreciate you going out of your way and opening your home. And I want to let everyone know if you're not in a family group yet, if you haven't signed up for one, please do so today because they're starting this Wednesday. They're going to go uh, twice a month all the way through the end of all the way through May. And then in in the summer, we'll, we'll reorganize and come back together for regular church midweeks. But uh, until then, it would be great for you to be a part of one. If you don't know how to get in, involved in one, just see me afterwards um, or my wife, Lynette. We will definitely help you out to find a group that will work for you. But uh, it's going to be a great time. We're looking forward to how that's going to affect us and our connection in these small groups as we focus on them for the next few months. Also, I want to let you know something really cool. Every uh, year... In our family of churches, we do a missions offering. You guys, if you've been around any length of time, you know about the missions offering. And uh, it's an opportunity for all of our churches around the globe to donate once a year. And then that money is kind of broken up geographically and, and goes to, to meet the needs on the various mission fields. And in our, our two churches, the Simi and the Shoreline Church, along with what we call the North Region, this is all sort of the churches that are in the north part of L.A., we, uh, all of our money gets sort of sent to two specific places, almost all of our money. Uh, it goes to Eurasia, uh, churches that are scattered throughout Eurasia. And then the other chunk of our, our, our special missions goes to what we call the Baltic Nordic regions. And so you can be encouraged that the money you give does go to those mission fields and it does do a great thing out there. But we held a little bit back, you might remember last year, we held a little bit back, just a a few thousand dollars really of our gift, because we decided we wanted to also spend some mission money here locally in California. Because we believe as a church, we want to see churches grow and be spread and be planted. And so we held some money back, and so did some of the other parts of our greater Los Angeles family of churches, and that money was pulled together, and it was used to restart the San Luis Obispo Church. We had a church up there many years ago, and through various situations it it collapsed and was existing as two small groups with no specific minister working with them, but we were able to identify the perfect candidate, the perfect minister who could go up there. He had relationships with the church up there. He was able to pull those two groups together. They agreed to have him come in and be their minister, and now we have a functioning church in San Luis Obispo led by Kip and Bethany Harms. And so really excited to know that our mission money is going not just abroad, but it's also going locally and starting or or getting churches up off the ground here locally. One last quick announcement. This Friday is a a parent meeting for the high school ministry. It's a a high school student and parent and ministry leaders meeting. That's at the Devo on Friday night. So if you want to be a part of that, give your input about the high school ministry, please be there this Friday, 730 at Caneo Adventist. 
All right, well, that being said, let's jump into our series, Jesus Worth Following. Now, last week I talked about uh, that following Jesus isn't always what it seems, that sometimes Jesus surprises us. Well, today I want to talk about faith. So I have a story about John the Baptist when he was a little boy. He was a little boy, and he was outside playing. His mom was in the house, and she looked out the window, and she was watching him play, and he happened to be playing church. He had his cat, the pet cat, on a chair, and he was standing in front of the cat, and he was preaching the word to his pet cat. And as his mom looked out the window, she was just filled with so much joy and pride that her, being a very religious woman, she saw her son, and at a young age, he was expressing such great faith and, and, and expressing his faith in God to the, to the household cat. And so she went about her business cleaning the house, and, and uh, after a few minutes, though, she started hearing the cat screaming and hissing and meowing, and she could hear little John screaming and saying something and yelling, and a big commotion broke out, so she ran over to the kitchen window, and she looked out, and there she saw little John had the cat over a bucket of water, and he was trying to dunk the, the cat into the bucket of water, and the cat was holding on to the side, screaming and meowing, and she yelled, John, what are you doing? Don't, you're scaring the cat. Cats don't like water. And without missing a beat, little John the Baptist turned and looked at his mom and said, he should have thought about that before he joined my church. <laughs> Sometimes we get ourselves into things and we say yes, but the action isn't always there. Amen? So let's talk about that today. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning and I pray that you'll minister to us today. Help us to see great things in your word and be inspired to act in great faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to read Mark chapter 10, verse 46. And I want to say at the outset that this is a really cool story. It's a short story. I won't be long. But it's a really cool story in the Bible. It says, Then they came to Jericho, and Jesus, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, we're leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. So we know the background here, uh, if you've been a part of the series. Jesus, uh, for the past three years, has been taking his followers all over the area of Palestine. You can see our map there. And towards the end of his time, as time was drawing near, he, uh, he was making his way down to Jerusalem. This would be about the third time that he went into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and it would be his final time. He would ultimately get arrested and crucified uh, on this occasion. But before he's in Jerusalem, he was down in this area called Perea. You can see it there on our map, just east of the Jordan River. And, he, and from there, he went on, they, they started heading in towards Jerusalem. Now, this was the time of the Passover, and Jewish pilgrims from all over Palestine were actually heading in to the city of Jerusalem about this time. The first place they come to is a city called Jericho. Now, I got a new little map here, and you can see there it says Jericho and the word OT, the letters OT next to it. That means Old Testament. This is about where Jesus and his disciples were, according to Mark. They came into the city of Jericho. Now, sometimes when we read the Bible, it helps to dig a little further to get an idea or to maybe, maybe get in, in a better connection to the story. Imagine if people 2,000 years from now read our letters that we wrote to each other. They would be 
mostly confused by what we say. Because a lot of the things we talk about in our letters, we assume each other already knows. In fact, when we communicate, we pretty much already assume things because they're, they're ubiquitous. They're, they're common to us. But 2,000 years from now, some of those things may not be around. Let me give you an example. We all, most of us live here and see me, right? If I was to say, hey, meet me at Happy Face Hill, you would know where that is. But 2,000 years from now, there would be all kinds of wonderings about what's Happy Face Hill. Because it wouldn't exist 2,000 years from now, most likely. Well, when we read the Bible, that sometimes happens. And that's actually happening right now in this text. You see, when we compare this text to two other texts that we find in the Bible, in the Gospel of Mark and the, Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, we see some discrepancies between these three Gospels. Mark says that as they were leaving the city, meaning the city of Jericho, they came in across this blind man named Bartimaeus. Well, Matthew says that there were actually two blind men. And when we read Luke, Luke says it was happening when they were entering the city of Jericho. So which is it? It's a con there, there's, some, there's, some, there's some confusion here. There's some, mis there's some uh, uh, conflicts in the accounts. And sometimes in an age of skepticism, we see a conflict like that and we go, see, it can't be true. The Bible's full of errors. There's mistakes being made. And look, how can we trust it? But, you know, if you just take a little extra time and you dig a little deeper, more often than not, you will solve almost every seeming contradiction that you read in the Bible. Now, I can't say we're going to solve every one of them a thousand percent. Where would be the fun of that? But most of the time, 99% of the time, just a little extra digging, you'll actually uncover some other information that will clarify why there seems to be these contradictions. In this case, in the time of Jesus, there were actually two cities of Jericho. The second one was located right there. I called it New Testament Jericho. It was just a couple miles south of the original city of Jericho. Now, the original city of Jericho was cool. It, was the, it is one of the oldest cities in the history of the world, the original city of Jericho. It was, in the time of Jesus, one of the oldest cities in the history of the world. But over the centuries, it had been conquered and destroyed and the site of much conflict, and most of it was in ruins by the time of Jesus, and mostly it was abandoned. And so a new city of Jericho happened to get built in the time of Herod the Great, just a generation before Jesus, just a couple miles south of the old city. Now here's where it gets funny or interesting and, 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 and really encouraging. Matthew and Mark, both who were Jewish by, by uh, um, heritage, they identified with the old city of Jericho because that was the city of the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. That was the city where Rahab was rescued and you know, protected the spies and rescued... Uh, and, 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 and was rescued by the Israelites during their invasion and their conquest of the land. And so to a Jewish person, they would always identify the older city as the city of Jericho. And that's why Mark says, as they were leaving the city. Now Luke, on the other hand, was a Greek who had converted. And to him, the new city of Jericho would have been the city he would have identified with. And so he says... Well, no, the, the healing of Bartimaeus occurred between the two, as they were entering the city. So what we're left to, what, what, what we discover in this, in this uh, explanation is that 
the healing of Bartimaeus took place in between the two cities. It was between them is where Bartimaeus was sitting by the roadside. And so, yes, it's true. As he was leaving the old city of Jericho, he met Bartimaeus. But it's also true as he was entering the new city of, Jer of Jericho, he healed Bartimaeus. Isn't that cool? With just a little bit of digging, we can actually clarify a seeming contradiction. But then we clarify it in such a way that you go, wow, the Bible's even more accurate than I thought it was. One of our values in our church, and I'm so grateful to be a part of our church for this reason, is that we believe in taking God at his word. Amen. And in an age of skepticism, that is a challenge for most people. We're so easily disillusioned. We're so easily uh, uh, tripped up by, by contradiction that we, we quickly write people or things off when we find a flaw. But you know, the Bible has been around the New Testament alone for some 2,000 years. The Old Testament even longer. And it has been tested, and it has been examined, and it has been reviewed, and it has been challenged. And time and time and time again, it always comes out smelling like roses. It always comes out uh, better than when, than when it went in. And so I can stand here with confidence, and I hope you have the same confidence, that we can take God at his word. Amen. Verse 47. <clears throat> when, G when he heard that it was Jesus, son of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David. Or Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. When you uh, uh, drive in, in, in most places in a city in, in today, you get off the freeway and at the bottom of the off-ramp, it's not uncommon to find someone there asking for money. Someone who is in need or whatever the case may be. But they're there and they're, they're begging, they're asking for money, maybe they have a sign. In Jesus' day, it was not... Very, it, was, it was very similar, except beggars often stood on or sat along sides of main roads. Especially during the time of the Passover or a, or a pilgrimage to Jerusalem when tens and thousands of people would be heading to Jerusalem, this would be a very popular time for beggars to sit along sides of main roads heading into Jerusalem begging for alms or for, for some sort of money as, as these pilgrims passed by. I remember when I was a younger Christian, uh, the church we were, I was a part of met at the, at the uh, Wiltern Theater in downtown L.A. And I would go to the Wiltern Theater, and it was cool to be down there. It was all cool and all that. But then after a few weeks, I noticed that when we would go to church, there would be a line of homeless people lined up asking for something uh, from us as we went in. I mean, what better place to ask for money than from people who are on their way to church? Well, it was kind of like that in Jesus' day. This is, the this is the Passover. Tens and thousands are pilgrimaging to Jerusalem. This was high time for, for those in need to line up along roadsides and ask people for money as they passed by. Now, I want to draw something out of this story that really struck me. When you uh, see people uh, panhandling or asking for money, and I, I'm not trying to be derogatory, I'm just you know, making a, a point here, there is a certain etiquette that comes with that. I mean, rarely will they be so disruptive that would cause you to want to not go that way, right? Because that would hurt 
their opportunity. Some may get out of hand. I understand there's some people that maybe there's a mental illness involved or whatever. But for the most part, there's kind of a, there's kind of a, a what's the word I'm looking for? There's kind of a culture that exists when you go into an area where there's a lot of people begging or, or panhandling. Because they want you to be able to give to them and they don't want to upset you. Well, I, I would imagine that in the time of Jesus, it was no different. That, that is, if we could imagine being there, we're walking down the road on the way to Jerusalem, and there would be beggars along the road, and they would probably be saying, hey, you know, alms for the poor, whatever they say, but they wouldn't be causing any kind of significant disruption that would affect your willingness to give them something. But not so with Bartimaeus. He starts youting, shouting and causing a scene. To the point that other people, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of the other beggars were asking him to stop. What are you doing? You're, you're ruining our opportunity here. Now, my background is in psychology. I've got my, my uh, undergrad and my graduate degree in, in, in psychology. And, and psychologists tell us that there's a, ph a phenomenon known as learned helplessness. Now, I'm going to tell you, uh, maybe... A graphic, I don't know how graphic you're going to take this, but it's just, it's, it's a story. It's true. Back in the day when they were studying out human behavior, they often did experiments on animals. Now, some of those experiments were, were rough and some weren't so rough. This experiment sounds rough, but it's not that rough, okay? What they did is they took some cats and they put them in a metal cage. And they electrified the cage. Now, they didn't kill the cat, okay? It was just enough to shock the cat. And the cats in the cage would bounce around and bounce around and bounce around when they turned the electricity on because it was shocking them and they were trying to get away from it. But there was nowhere to go. And eventually, those cats would just give up and sit and endure the shock. Now, they had another set of cats who they did the exact same thing with, but they put a, metal, a wooden board in the cage. And so as soon as they electrified it, they would immediately jump on the board and sit there. And no matter how many times they electrified the cage, the cat would always go to the board. So then they went back to the other cats who just sat there and endured the shock and they put the board in there and the cat would not get on the board. It learned to be helpless. It learned to just sit there and take the shock. Now, other scientists wondered or researchers wondered if this was true with humans. So they devised an experiment with humans, not with cages and shocks. <laughs> but what they did is they put one group of people in a room and they had noise in the room, very... Uh, disruptive noise and then they had to make they had to do certain tasks they had to perform certain tasks in the other room they had the same people with the same noise and the same task but they gave them a switch on the wall that if you turn the switch off you could turn the noise off now here's what they found the people in the room with the switch some of them turned off the noise others didn't they, some people didn't the noise didn't bother them but that group of people always outperformed the other group of people which led the researchers to believe that if we have even the perception of control, we will perform better in whatever it is we're doing. So this has led people, researchers, and some to believe that learned helplessness is one of the factors that, that contributes to depression. People feel like there's nothing they can do to change their circumstance, and that is a, uh, one, of the, one of the criteria of depression. Or even things like homelessness or other so psychosocial illnesses or problems or even cultural problems that happen. When people feel that they don't have the ability to affect their circumstance, they tend to resign and give up.
And that's kind of what happens, I believe, when Jesus is walking down this road and the, uh, the beggars are just doing business as usual. Business as usual. Let's just get the little bit we can get. They're resigned. They've given up. They've surrendered to their circumstance. But not Bartimaeus. When he heard Jesus had come on the road, and believe me, it wasn't that he had secret information about Jesus. Jesus' reputation was widespread at this point. He was known to be a healer. Could you imagine that if, if, if you had a, a physical ailment, a, a, a blindness, or, or, or some, some other um, uh, extenuating circumstance in your life that was causing you great distress and there was nothing you could do about it? Could you imagine if Jesus walked in and you didn't even think of asking him for his help? That's learned helplessness. They were ambivalent. But Bartimaeus was like, wait a second. Jesus, the healer, the son of David, the guy they're claiming to be the Messiah, he's walking by. Jesus, Jesus, come over here. Come over here. Where are you? He acted completely different than the people around him when he heard that Jesus had come to him. Bartimaeus is a great example of what not to do, of, 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 of how to overcome learned helplessness. We don't overcome uh, our, our negative situation by doing nothing. We overcome it by crying out and looking for solutions. Right. Now, I can't say it's going to happen in every case. You have a loved one that passes away. They're, they're not going to come back. I've experienced that in my life. They don't come back. You, you do have to surrender and accept some things. But there's so many other things that happen in our lives that we just accept. We just get ambivalent towards when, in fact... If we would cry out to God, there's something that might be done about it. There's something that could happen. And that's what faith is all about. It's about believing and never giving in to not believing that things couldn't be better, that, that God couldn't work in, that, that God couldn't work in some way to improve the situation. That is what faith is all about. And that's what Bartimaeus is a great example of. So let's talk about his faith. I have two things that jump out at me about his faith. Two, I don't know what you want to call it, practicals or just insights. And then we'll be done. The first insight is this. It says that in verse... <coughs> oh, so in verse 49 it says, Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man, cheer up. On your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, <coughs> he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So here's the story. Jesus is passing by. Bartimaeus starts acting crazy. Everybody's trying to calm him down, but he's like, wait a second. Jesus, the healer's here. Forget that. I need to, I need to get some healing. And his antics, his constant crying out, his refusal to shut up gets Jesus' attention. So Jesus stops and says, hey, call him over here. And so Bartimaeus runs over, and Jesus says, what do you want? He goes, I want to see. And, and without batting an eye, no pun intended, Jesus heals Bartimaeus. And then it says that he followed him along the road. They were heading towards Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. 
I have no idea how long Bartimaeus had been blind, whether it was from birth or from some accident or whatever. But can you imagine the joy he must have felt for being able to go to Jerusalem maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time, being able to go and worship God at the temple? It must have been an incredible moment. By the way, doubling back on something, remember how I said there were some contradictions and one of the contradictions was that Matthew says there were two people healed, but Mark and Luke said there was only one. I think we get an, a clue here as to why they only talk about one. It seems that Bartimaeus joined their little group heading into Jerusalem. So apparently they got to know him. That's why they mentioned him and knew him by name. The other guy, I believe there were two people healed. He probably went back home happy that he got his sight back and went to tell his family, but apparently didn't follow. So, so even, even the, the discrepancy of one or two people can be explained even if you just look at the text a little closer. But that's a side point. So let's go back to the story here. So, so Jesus heals him. What was it about Bartimaeus' Bartimaeus's faith that, that enacted or that resulted in this healing? What was it? I see two really cool, sorry, I've been asking questions. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. No, no, that's good, Jen. All right, I'll ask you the question. The last couple of Sundays, I've been doing some audience. So Jen jumped, put her hand up. Go ahead. We'll do that. That's awesome. What was it about his faith? Well, he was direct. He was direct. Didn't beat around the bush. He was clear what he wanted, and he went right to Jesus and asked for it. Yeah, anyone else want to chime in? Any idea why? You know, what was it about his faith? Yeah. He was persistent, he was persistent right? He couldn't shut him up. He wouldn't stop shouting. He wouldn't stop asking. Dana. He knew what he wanted. <coughs> he knew what he wanted. He didn't get discouraged. Tony, yeah, he didn't get discouraged. He didn't quit. Yeah, T Clay. He was, he was desperate. He didn't listen to he didn't let people detract him or, or, or lead, him, lead him into a, or shut him up, right? All of those things are true. I have two things that I want to point out that really blew my mind when I dug into this passage. The first one is found right here when he said, in verse 50, throwing his cloak aside. You know, it seems like uh, just some information there seems unnecessary, but I want to, I want to tell you a story that, that really hit me and made this come alive for me. I was in Vegas over the holidays seeing some of my cousins, I have cousins there and we were visiting them and we went down to Fremont Street, you probably know that. And on Fremont Street there's a lot of uh, street performers and things like that and we got there early. And so we were walking down the street and I, was wa I saw a street performer who just got there and he was getting set up. And he was getting all this stuff organized and the last thing he did was he put a hat down in front of where he was doing his performance. What was the hat for? For money. In the time of Jesus, the cloak was where you dropped your money. When the beggar sat on the road, he put the cloak down there, and that was where he collected the alms. He threw it aside. That jumps out at me. It's incredible to think about this, but no amount of money, whatever, it could have been a lot, it could have been a little. It was a pilgrimage. There were thousands of people going by. He might have had a lot of alms in there, but it didn't matter. It wasn't worth the opportunity to face to, for a face-to-face -face with Jesus. Talk about faith. The second thing that jumps out at me is it said that he, that he jumped up on his feet and came to Jesus. He wasn't healed yet. 
Who knows what he would have run into, who he would have run into. He might have tripped. He could have broken arm. I mean, he risked some injury here to go to Jesus. He jumped blindly. Talk about a leap of faith. Those two things really stand out to me in Bartimaeus. Nothing was more important to him, not, not, not his money and not his own safety, than getting that face-to-face with Jesus. And let me say the third thing. There was no guarantee that Jesus would heal him. He truly did it as a leap of faith. So Bartimaeus is shouting, got Jesus' attention. But his willingness to act in faith got him healed. And that's what Jesus says. Go, your faith has healed you. It wasn't the shouting alone. It was the action that followed. So here's my question for you. It's a good question. I thought about this question a lot. It came to me in my preparation. I feel like God... God gave me this question. And it's been bugging me ever since. It's one of those questions that I just, I can't stop getting out of my head. And so now I'm going to give it to you. And you're going to thank me because you're going to wander around going, thanks for that dumb question. I can't get it out of my head now. It's like a song that plays over and over and over. But it's a really good question. Are you ready? Have you ever wondered how many times your prayers got Jesus' attention. But your unwillingness to act in faith left them unanswered. I can't imagine how many of those, those people were crying out at some point in their life, wanting something, some solution, some help, but they didn't act on the faith. I can't think, I mean, I, I, I keep thinking about this over and over. How many times have I asked, but I didn't act? I want to challenge you to act. Faith is more than just words. It's action. It's a doing. Right. We are engaged in mission love. We've made a resolution as a church to love and live like Jesus. And I hope... Like me, you're praying about it. I hope you're thinking about things to do. And maybe you've written some down, and I hope you have. But the question is, have you started? Have you gotten busy on it? Or is it still just an idea? How many things have just gotten left? They could have been answered. They could have manifested. The power of God could have worked in your life, and they could have blossomed into something incredible. But because they just stayed in the idea phase, nothing has happened. Faith is so much more than just saying the right thing. Like John the Baptist's little cat figured out. (laughs) Faith requires doing the right thing. So I want to challenge us to be doers of our faith. Let's stand. We'll close with a prayer. Father, thank you so very much for the example of Bartimaeus, for the stories in the Bible that seem so small yet so powerful. God, help us to leave here as people of great faith, willing to act on our faith and to see the outcome, the blessing, the the result that you want to bring in our life as a result.
We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.